Do you think any of these old buildings in downtown Guthrie are haunted? Oh, all of them. I'm Sam Saxon. I'm Joff DeRoot. And you're listening to Tales Unveiled, where we explore urban legends. This episode of Tales Unveiled is sponsored by Oki Comics. For another unique exploration of Oklahoma stories in comic book form, check out okiecomics.com. That's O-K-I-E comics.com. The professor and I had carpooled to Guthrie, which is allegedly one of the most haunted towns in the state of Oklahoma. We were scheduled to meet with the Oki Show Show at the Stone Line Inn later that evening, but we decided to arrive beforehand to gather quotes from locals in downtown Guthrie. This proved rather difficult. Most of our attempts for quotes were met with declines with people not wanting to get into trouble. However, we did manage to get two people to go on record about their ghost stories. For the record, can you tell us your name and a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm Tammy. I've lived here in Guthrie my whole life, and I work at a coffee shop. What's your local ghost story here in Guthrie? Well, when I was younger, I lived in a house here in Guthrie with my whole family, and we had a few different scary occurrences happen. My older brother was in his crib, and he had been crying because he wanted cookies, but my parents wouldn't give it to him because they wanted him to go to bed. Well, they heard him playing around and giggling in his room, and came in, found him running around with cookies and laughing and playing with somebody who wasn't there when he was too young himself to actually get out of the crib. And that frightened them. And we also had a room, or a closet I guess, that smelled like waffles for some reason all the time. And it freaked my dad so much that he blocked off the whole top of the house. Where does one find a waffle smelling ghost? I honestly have no clue. I mean, the house had apparently had somebody who committed suicide in the basement by hanging himself, and then two little twin girls that drowned in the pond that was beside it, that lived in that house. So. That took a very dark turn. (laughs) Indeed. For the record, can you state your name and tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Art Aguirre. I'm 63 years old. I've been in the business about 35 years. I had a shop in Amarillo for 20-something years. I left Amarillo in 89 and went to Boston, Massachusetts. From Boston, I came here in 2007. I have two antique stores and uh, found out a few years after I moved here, there's ghost stories to be had around town, stories I've heard from different people. Can you tell us about some of the ghost stories you have? Well, a few years ago, it was a Saturday morning, and we had just opened. It was around 10.30 in the morning. Two ladies went upstairs to look around, and uh, when they were coming back toward the stairs upstairs, there was a rocking chair next to the staircase, and it was rocking by itself. And they came down giggling and laughing about it, and they told me about it. And I just like, don't tell me stuff like that. Anyway, uh, sometimes I come in at night and do paperwork, and... Granted, you know, there are stores around me next to me that are closed. They've been closed all evening. 
And for some reason, I, I hear voices sometimes, just murmurs. Sometimes I can barely make it. Sometimes it's women, sometimes it's men, sometimes it's laughter, like a little giggle. And even during the day, sometimes I'll be sitting working and I'll hear something and I'll get up thinking there's somebody over there. I hear like a little voice or something, nothing there. And it's happened several times. As we crossed the street to find a third person to record, the professor spotted Stacy Frazier. I have to say, we hit the jackpot on local urban legends when we interviewed Stacy. We conducted our interview at the Apothecary Garden, which is where the walking ghost tours start. This is Professor Joff Derut in Guthrie, Oklahoma. I'm sitting here with reporter Sam Saxon. Hello. And our special guest, Stacy Frazier. Hi there. Uh, tell us a little about, about yourself. Well, I'm not from Guthrie, but I've lived in Guthrie for quite some time now. My family's from here, going way back into the early 1900s. They've always been very active in the community, and uh, because of that, I, I sort of have a little bit of inside knowledge sometimes on the things that happened and the things that didn't happen. And I just like to uh, I just like to dig into that every once in a while. The professor tells me that you are in charge of the Guthrie Ghost Walks. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I can. The Guthrie Ghost Walk. We we started that a few years ago. We had been up in Canada and went on a ghost walk up there and realized how much the town looked like Guthrie and then realized how much better the stories we had really were. But, you know, it's Canada, so you do what you can. And we came back and we started digging into some of the stories we had heard. And the more we dug, the more we found. And what started off as just a, a one-time family and friends, let's go take a walk and let me tell you what I've, I've discovered, has turned into five years later, I've got over 40 stories at this point that I have dug through and done corroboration on regarding individuals and dates and times and, and, and activities. Before we get into some of those stories, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Guthrie itself for the, our listeners? Then? Guthrie has one of the most singularly unique foundations and beginnings of probably any community in the United States, if not the world. I don't know who got the, the bright idea to say on your market set, go, let's start a state. But that's what they did with Oklahoma, with the territories. And Guthrie was settled in, uh, it was April 22nd, 1889 was the, that particular land run, and between 50 and 80,000 people converged on this spot. And by sundown, we were a town of over 10,000 people. Now, we were the territorial capital. We were also the first state capital uh, when Oklahoma achieved statehood in 1907. 1910, there was a little hiccup. They moved the state capital to Oklahoma City. Some people say that it was stolen. Some people say that it was a legitimate vote. There was a statewide referendum. That's not to say that people didn't use the slogan, vote early, vote often. Um, and there are people still here in Guthrie that are, a, they hold a grudge. They're a little irked about that. But uh, Guthrie has just such a unique history. We have the largest historic district in the United States. 
We have one of the largest collections of Victorian and Edwardian architecture anywhere in the world. And a lot of that is due to the fact that they did take the state capital away because what happened is that progress stopped and Guthrie became a bit of a time capsule. And that's the streets that you walk today. Fascinating. Well, let's kind of get into some of those ghost stories. I'm going to hand it over to the professor here. With everything freezing here, that should have given something for the presences to stay. What would you th- say? Definitely. It's uh, the, the, uh, the paranormal groups that have been through Guthrie and the investigative groups and such, they always talk about the energy in Guthrie. And, and they talk about the, the perfect nexus, the perfect consistency of we have of person, place, and time. And the energy that they like to talk about, I like to discuss on, on my ghost walk as well. And we're not talking about the creepy, spooky, you know, I'm running down the street, something's giving me the heebie-jeebies energy. We're talking about electrical energy, that measurable phenomena that, that we have within each of us, this, the spark that keeps your heart beating, the, the synapses that fire in your brain. When you go back to the day of the land run, I always like to compare it to, imagine the biggest concert you've ever been to, especially if you've ever been to an arena concert. It, it's like the crowd achieves a state, of, it, the, it's like it has a life of its own. The energy level is completely and absolutely more than the sum of its parts. And when you relate that to the land run, I mean, these people weren't here for a music festival. They were here with everything they owned, getting ready to start an entirely new life. And that residual energy that they talk about uh, is just found the perfect place to to stay and to reside in these, these original 100-plus-year-old buildings. Uh, what are some of the most famous stories here in Guthrie? Well, we've got we've got a couple of doozies. We've got some that uh, that revolve around the Bluebell Saloon, which is the oldest saloon in the state of Oklahoma. It uh, literally goes back to the day of the land run. The two guys that that settled that lot, all they had with them were, were the two horses and a couple of crates of beer. They got the lot. They flipped the crates upside down, put a board across it, and said booyah, it's a bar. And it's been the Bluebell ever since. And there have been a lot of stories affiliated with that, especially with Miss Lizzie's, which was the bordello upstairs. And uh, we've had uh, we've had presidents that have been there. So there's they talk about the residual energy from that. We've had uh, young girls that have gone disappeared and disappeared or, or have just been murdered by their patrons from the bordello, so. Wow, can you name some of the more famous people that passed through? Lord, uh, just the just on the, the blue steps of the Bluebell alone, um, Guthrie, you have to realize Guthrie was like Chicago back in the day. It was, it was, there was, it wasn't as, as frantic as some of the urban areas, but it was busy. And when Gone with the Wind was released, Guthrie was on the premiere tour. And they, they mm. showed the movie here, they premiered it, and the entire, main cast of Gone with the Wind had their photograph taken on the oh, steps of wow. the Bluebell. Um, two presidents have given speeches from the steps of the Bluebell. Uh, apparently John Wayne has beat on the door with the butt of his his uh, his prop gun, not once, but twice, because he wanted a steak and they weren't open yet while he was here filming. I think he was <laughs> here filming Cimarron Kid and, and one of the other ones. What are some of the other stories you've heard? 
Some of them, there's a story that's associated with the train depot that involves one of the Harvey girls who went missing. You know, the Harvey girls were not allowed to be married, and they weren't even supposed to be engaged. And there was a young lady that had worked there around the turn of the century, I think 1917, 1918. And uh, it turns out she was engaged, her fiancé, uh, was over in Europe, World War One, and he went missing, and she disappeared one night. And uh, it wasn't a year later before he showed up, at, you know, where you been? And uh, he spent another year looking for her, and they never found her, but it wasn't until after he died in 1929 that they started seeing this young woman walking along the tracks all hours of the day and night. Hmm, interesting. Do you have a personal experience that's happened to you here in Guthrie? I I have a couple of them. One of them actually involves the young woman from the depot. Uh, I had not heard the story, per se, as far as the details of it. I, uh, in 19, in night, no, let's see, 2007. I'm going to get my, I'm going to get my, not my decades, I'm going to get my (laughs) centuries confused here. In 2007, Oklahoma was celebrating its statehood. And I had gotten tasked by someone here in town with uh, another woman. We were going to meet some of the, uh, the tour buses that were coming through. And it was truly horrible. We were in dresses and hats, and it was just, yes, I had a lot more hair, so it made a lot more sense. But we were waiting for one of the buses to come around, and there was a local gentleman here in town who still lives here, so you don't get a name. Uh, he was slightly inebriated that night and decided that he was going to be our escort for the evening. Yay. And we couldn't get rid of him. And so we went down to the depot because there was a lot of activity going on. The uh, the Heartland Flyer, the train that runs between Oklahoma City and Dallas, they had actually got them to make runs. You could get on one of the, the local trolleys. They would take you to Oklahoma City, and you could ride the train back for free to experience that, that and going through all of the lights and such. So there was a lot of activity. So we thought we would go down there and, and ditch the drunk guy. And he followed us, and we ended up doing what any self-respecting woman does when trying to ditch a man, um, hiding in the bathroom. And he was in the hall outside waiting for us. And we were texting everyone, everyone we knew, drunk guy in the bathroom, help, help, help. And after about 25 minutes, we finally had somebody come down to rescue us. And she's like, you know, you fool, he's gone. Well, thank God, drunk guy's gone. That's all I really care about. And as we're coming back up into the main restaurant, out of the, the, the restrooms down the hallway, Uh, one of the owners, she starts laughing at us. And she's like, you, I can't believe you've been in the bathroom all this time. Don't care. Drunk guy's gone. Uh, She goes, he left right after you went in. Really? Once again, I don't care. Drunk guy's gone. She goes, yes, he left with that other lady that that, uh, was with you two. That uh, I guess she, you guys went in and she came out and I acted like she knew him and she left. The problem was... There was nobody in that bathroom when we went in there. there. And that bathroom is incredibly small. There were there was barely room for us two in our stupid dresses we had to wear. Um, but she swore that we went into the, to the ladies' room, a couple of beats passed, and then this other woman came out and escorted this gentleman out of the building. And she went on to explain... She went on to explain that this woman was obviously was with us because she was dressed like us. She had on a pale blue dress and her hair was upswept. 
And at the time, I didn't know the story of Howard and Evelyn. I didn't know any of the identifiers, like the fact that Evelyn disappeared wearing a pale blue dress and had the sandy blonde upswept hair. Um, I, I, all I knew was that the drunk guy was gone. I don't know, don't, didn't know, didn't care where this woman came from. Um, it wasn't until several years later, I was at one of the diners here in town and there was a couple in the booth behind me and you know how you can tell when people are lost and you just can't stand it anymore and you have to help um, and help them figure out what they were looking for. It turns out that they were looking for what at the time was known as a flop house and it turned, it out, turned out to be the railroad house bed and breakfast. This gentleman was the great, great nephew of Howard, the gentleman who had, was missing and had showed up looking for his fiance. They had kept this story of Howard's travels of trying to locate Evelyn that year so alive in their family that they, I mean, it was, it was part of their oral tradition at the holidays to sit around and, and, and recount these stories because all Howard did for the last few years of his life was read and reread the letters. And the wife had stopped in, had, had butted into the conversation at one point. She goes, I love, I specifically love the letter where Evelyn has written him and is talking to him about how she has bought a bolt of fabric. And it's a lovely robin egg blue, which just hit me out of nowhere because it was the exact description that the woman at the train station had used to describe the, the dress color that the woman coming out of the bathroom had been wearing. Interesting. That's almost like you would say she was trying to like help you out. It's it's absolutely true. And the the people that have been in that that depot since then, almost all of them have talked about that presence of of having a helping hand of of uh, waitresses who no one can identify, but coffee cups being refilled and and someone you know bringing condiments and silverware. There was even there was even a tip left for that lovely young woman in the blue dress at one of the the restaurants there was there and they had at the time they had no one who fit that description what is the building now for the record uh it's still the train depot it uh is currently part of it is under being renovated it's going to be a gorgeous facility for an event center but a steakhouse gage's steakhouse has actually moved in there which was one of the premier restaurants here in town and they've moved down there and it's just been it's amazing the revitalization that they're doing with this building. With such a positive spirit, would you say that most of the residuals here are uh, positive energies? There's a good a good portion of them, I, I believe, that are. Maybe I'm just not too keen on chasing the other ones, but a lot of the ones that I find that that I seem to be drawn to are those stories about people who just enjoyed what they do to the point that maybe they just want to keep doing it. There are a few that I've encountered, not personally, but the stories that I've uncovered of that are less than amiable. Um, I've had some of the uh, some of the, the the cable network channel ghost adventure shows that come through and they are looking for stories and, and someone will direct them to me and I'll tell them a story of this build. They'll point out a building and I'll tell them if I have a story about it. And um, last year we had one such occasion and the gentleman said, well, don't you have anything more gory? And all I could tell him was it's the idea of the paranormal experience is not necessarily about fear. 
It's about that connection between the person and the place and the time. I'm certain if we tried really hard, we could find a lot more of the the less than good-natured spirits, if you will. But a lot of the ones that I find just seem to have that connection with the building. They have that connection with the time. They have that connection with the location. Um, and who are we to discount that? Now we do have. We, uh, having said that, we do have. We do have a gentleman in town. Well, uh, the spirit of a gentleman in town, I guess. His name is Ivan Ridge, and Ivan was a bit of a mess back in the day. He ran uh, the barber shop down in town, and social, socially awkward probably doesn't even come close to covering it. Ivan's idea of fun was doing things like um, spitting on kids. Um, blowing smoke in the little old lady's faces, tripping the gentleman in the street, mm, or his own... Yeah, oh, it gets better. Or reaching out and pinching young women on the butt mm. because he said they liked it. It made him feel special. So once again, the Red Hatters in town just... At one point, they went screaming across the street, pinch me, pinch me. I'm going to start charging more for the old ladies. As we were walking around, several people said, talk about the hospital. The hospital. The hospital is, a, is an interesting facility. It's over on the west side. It's a multi-story building, and I have a little bit of particular insight into it in that my niece, her husband, is the project manor for the, ma- uh, manager for the renovation that's going on there. For decades, it was the hospital of Logan County, and it was a huge facility. The building itself is just incredible. It was poured in place concrete, so it's still curing to this day. You know, if there's ever a storm, we just all need to go there because that building's not going anywhere. Um, One of its last stories in the news is that it was where they brought the body of Karen Silkwood after her accident. But I had the opportunity to tour the hospital briefly after they had done the asbestos abatement. And back probably 20 years ago, there was a paranormal group that had come through there. They were allowed to set up cameras. They were allowed to put props and stuff in there and see if they could provoke the spirits, as they called it, into doing this. So so what happened after that is that you would have kids break into it and they would see these toys and they would see these these props and they would they would assume that it had something to do with the spirits. But it's, once again, fact is way more interesting than fiction in this case because the kids that broke into it would create their own stories and then that became the lore and the legend when the reality is much like just about, I mean, find me a nurse that doesn't have a story for you. And it's, it's amazing to me how many investigators and, and people in the paranormal world are in healthcare because they've seen things they just cannot explain. But the, the hospital right now is being renovated, get this, into Senior Living Center. That should be fun. I'm not sure if I'd want to stay in there. I'm just saying. It, the hospital, when I went in there, the prevailing emotion that struck me was sadness. In some places of the hospital, it looked like people had gone off shift and no one ever came back. There were coffee cups sitting around. There were charts that were just halfway open. But to me, some of the more interesting stories are not from when the hospital was vacant, because those are always difficult to corroborate. But the stories that have come out of it from when it was occupied, like uh, there was a floor there where 
I mean, today, if we have autistic children, they are more mainstreamed. We work with them. We try to get them involved. Back in the day, in the 50s and such, they were locked up on a ward. And in this case, one of the wards in this hospital. And the activities and the, the events that the, and the stories that came out of that particular ward are just truly terrifying. remnants of, of screams and, and things moving and whirlwinds of, of papers flying out and, and just patients knowing things they shouldn't know, but they seem to know. Speaking of, of, of other patients in the hospital and such, it was, it was, it's, it's still an odd place to be in. And I'm with you. I don't think I'd want to be, you know, I don't know. One of the other places people were telling us about was the old mansion that's now been kind of converted into like an event center? The Dominion House, which is what it's called now. This is one of those fascinating places in Guthrie. It was a Masonic children's home. Um, at one point it was run by the sisters, I think the Sisters of Mercy Catholic Charities. At, back in the day, not only was it an orphanage, but it was also a senior's, the uh, Mason's retirement home. So you had the very old and the very young there. And this goes all the way back to the 20s. This, this facility and so many of the, the kids that were there were not necessarily orphans so much as their parents couldn't afford to take care of them. You had, uh, you had a lot, you know, times were hard after the stock market crashed in 29. You had farmers were going belly up because of the, the Dust Bowl. You had a lot of kids that were there for a year, two years, three years while their parents were off in other parts of the country working. Sometimes they came back and got them, sometimes they didn't. They tried to teach the kids a trade. There was a printing company on site that that they, they taught them. One of the, there was a, a gentleman that my aunt used to, to run with back in the day, and his name was Speedy Weems, which is the best name on the planet. But Speedy was a product of the retirement home. When it closed, it was the last orphanage, it was the last functioning orphanage in the state of Oklahoma. When it closed, it immediately fell into disrepair. And like so many other buildings, people started going into it. And once again, you had a lot of kids that would go in and draw pentagrams, and then people would get freaked out because there were pentagrams. And it's, it gets very difficult to separate fact from fiction and story-wise. But once again, the more interesting stories are the ones that occurred when the building was still operational. The stories of people, a wing that had been closed down, and people, uh, nurses, would hear people screaming and crying out of there. There were doors that would slam on some of these nurses' faces. The gentleman that, that bought the building, talk about a steal, he bought that place for less than $100,000. Wow and completely renovated it. They had a personal residence upstairs. It's been made into an event center. It's been open long enough now that it has a, a pretty steady staff. That's the problem with some of these places is that you have turnover of staff and so you don't get those stories corroborated. But the staff has been there long enough now that they are starting to once again share some of the stories that they have coming out of there. Lights flickering to answer questions when it's put to them. Hearing piano being played in a room where there's no piano and there's no radio. There was a story, I think, that was attributed back in the, the late 50s to a nurse that was apparently abusing children there. 
And so there's that, that whole negative vibe that goes through and on that one side. We're starting to hear a few more of those stories as well of hearing kids crying when there's no one down that in that wing, of hearing sounds behind a door when that door is actually, it's just left there to be architecturally pleasing because there's a solid wall on the other side of it, but yet they, it's like they hear something in a room that the room doesn't exist. I've heard many stories about the Masonic Temple, have you? I've heard some fantastic stories about the Masonic Temple. First of all, if you've never been to the Masonic Temple, it is the best $5 tour you'll ever get. Just do not go in the summer because there's no air conditioning. I don't know how familiar you are with the history of the temple, but the, all of the interior design work was done by a woman. And, which is interesting because it's the Masons. And Catherine was just, I mean, she hand drew and hand painted watercolor wallpaper for this thing. She did this entire design for all of this structure. And it's, it's, it's the largest Masonic temple in the world. It's just an incredible piece of architecture. And I guess what happened was she, towards the end of the construction project, she had to go check on another little project she was working on called Radio City Music Hall. And when she came back, she wanted to be present for they were going to sanctify, the Masons were going to sanctify the building. They wouldn't let her in because she was a female. And they say that was when the original die was cast for some of the, the activity that goes on there. They say that you hear heels, women's heels, clicking up and down the marble floors all through the buildings. You'll have fire, file drawers that will just spew files out and paperwork out. And they say that Catherine's on a bit of a tear because somebody's obviously taking credit for something that was her work. Sounds like they deserve it, though. Well, probably. What have you heard about the famous tunnels of Guthrie? The tunnels. Once again, the facts are way more interesting than the stories, than the fiction it is. The history of the tunnels, first of all, if you go to the city of Guthrie right now and say, I'd like to know about the tunnels, they're going to say, there are no tunnels, we have no tunnels, I don't know what you're talking about, go get yourself a cup of coffee, leave, there's no tunnels. They absolutely deny the presence that there ever have been, there ever were, there ever will be any tunnels anywhere in the city of Guthrie. Part of that is because they don't want yahoos coming in the middle of town and digging up the streets. The history of the tunnels, from as near as anyone can tell, actually goes back to the preparation of the city for the land run. Over on Harrison Street, just east of Division, there's a large rock wall, and it's called, surprisingly enough, The Rock. And behind that rock is the high school football stadium. Now, the high school football stadium was built in a natural ravine. And so there's a very wide road there. And what a lot of people don't realize is underneath that road is a bridge. Because the way the ravine ran, the creek came to the road perpendicular and then it turned and went to the east. And they, they were trying to keep the continuity of the street lines. They, they didn't want things jigging, jagging all over the place. So they went ahead and put a bridge in there so that they could keep that line. But what you ended up with was a bridge that one side of it you could come under it, but the majority of it on the north side of the bridge butted up against a rock face where the ravine turned. Now, it didn't take long for people to realize that was a really good place to park your horse. I say park your horse, tie your horse, park your wagon, park, you know, eventually your car. People used it as an early day parking garage to keep their horses, their animals, their vehicles out of the weather. And 
above that rock face, which is where it's just now empty parking lot, that was where they built the Brooks Opera House. Now the Brooks Opera House, one of the premier opera houses in, in, in the United States, the acoustics were said to have just been phenomenal. So we had people coming from all over the United States and all over the region to attend these performances. Well, that made it handy because they could park underneath the, the bridge, but then they still had to slog through all the weather to get in there. So somebody said, you know what? Why don't we cut into the rock face and connect into the basement of the opera house? And that way we can park underneath it and then just go straight into the opera house. What's a ta-da, parking garage. Well, that's brilliant. Well, then somebody else said, well, hang on, if we're gonna do that, why don't we just cut, connect the basement of the opera house to the Royal Hotel just to the west because that's where everybody likes to go eat afterward. Well, okay then. Well, the next thing, you know, well, we might as well connect to the tavern on the corner. And then what they ended up doing was connecting basement to basement to basement. Just one thing after one another. Thing after they get to the street, well, let's just tunnel under the street, basement to basement to basement. And so what you ended up with was not so much a tunnel system as a honeycomb of the entire downtown area of all of the buildings being interconnected. It's, if you think about the, like the concourse in Oklahoma City or some of the tunnel sections, I know Tulsa has a, a collection of tunnels, but Oklahoma City has, actually has a vibrant retail community in their underground area. We had uh, shortcuts is what it came down to. My grandmother would talk about coming in from Crescent and parking the wagon underneath there and then later on the car. And she could do the majority of her shopping just going, taking those tunnel connections, as she called them, basement connections, all over the downtown area without having to pop her head above town. Now, where things really got fun with the tunnel, per se, is in the 30s. You know, the whole Bonnie and Clyde era going on. Nobody had any money. Everybody was just stealing from everybody else. Oh, I don't know what else to do. I'll be a bank robber. Somebody put it out there that, hey, there's this town in Oklahoma. It's just north of Oklahoma City, they got a lot of, they've got oil money and they've got farm money in their banks and they've got tunnels. And so it started where you had these really not very bright criminal element coming into town and they would stage their getaway driver underneath the bridge. And then they would go downtown and they'd knock off a bank. And then it's then it just becomes a comedy of errors. How do I get into the tunnel system? Oh, down here. And then they're down and they're up and they're down and they're up and they're by the time they finally get over to the bridge, their getaway driver has long since decided this is a bad idea and has left. And the police would just be sitting over there waiting for them. <laughs> so it's I mean, I myself I I can remember as a very small child probably seven years old, my Uncle Mike taking me downtown, pulling up a manhole cover and saying, hey kid, let me show you where we had the good gin parties when I was a kid. And he grabbed me by the ankles, handed me a flashlight, flipped me upside down and lowered me into this, to this opening. And then he would just spin me around by my ankles going, you see over there, do you see that? And I, sure enough, upside down, there's a doorway. And, but there's rock fall and stuff. And he goes, that's where we got in and we could go in by the old Santa Fe uh, spur here in town and we could head up over towards the stadium where you see this over here and this is where we'd go under to the Pollard. So I have, all of those memories are distorted in that they're upside down and part of my brain says, no, I can't flip those for you. That's just what they are. But the last time I knew of anybody that had been any distance would have been probably about 2002 and they had accessed them from underneath that bridge area which is now where the team rooms are and it has since been walled up 
I mean, obviously with infrastructure changes and such, uh, most of those connections have been closed. If you go into basements of the buildings, though, go into the Bluebell, go into the Pollard building, go into the, uh, what was the old, where the steakhouse was, you will see on the walls, you will see brick walls, but with an arch built into it, where they've obviously closed up a doorway, a doorway to where? While the professor jotted down information in his notebook, I looked at my phone to check the time, and that's when I realized it was time for us to go, and that I had a voicemail. Hey, Sam, this is Brian from the Okie Show Show, just making sure you guys are still good to come out, uh, record an episode over at Stone Lion Inn. Uh, give me a call. We are getting set up right now, so whenever y'all get here, we can get started. I explained that we were running behind for our next interview, but... Before we left, the professor had one final question for Stacy. We appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us about Guthrie. Absolutely, anytime. Have you ever heard the name George Grayson? George Grayson. I can't say that I have. I'm Sam Saxon, and you've been listening to Tales Unveiled. Tune in next time for when we visit the Stone Lion Inn, a place that the owner describes as a house with issues. Tales Unveiled is a production of The Show Starts Now Studios and is produced by Dennis Spielman. The voice of Sam Saxton is Dennis Spielman. The voice of Professor Jeff DeRoot is Jeff Provine. Featuring Tammy, Art, Stacy, and Brian as themselves. Want to learn more about the ghosts of Guthrie? Take the Guthrie Ghost Walk. For tickets, visit www.guthrieghostwalk.com. To support this podcast and get bonus content, visit www.talesunveiled.com. Before we go, I have some advice for you from Will Rogers. Good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of that comes from bad judgment. Bad judgment.